Good to see you. We're in the book of Joshua. We're looking at a series here called Conquering Canaan. And uh, today we come to, actually we're going to be in Joshua chapter 3 for a little bit, but end up in Joshua chapter 4. At least that's the plan. And uh, we're, last week we looked at the first section of chapter 3, which was a message from God. Uh, that's a message that was conveyed to Joshua. And to kind of catch you all up a little bit on where we are in the book of Joshua, you know that this is one of those books that, well, it's a, called a historical book. Um, and it, it memorializes in written form what God did with the children of Israel when they went from the wilderness experience, where they had wandered around for almost 40 years, and they entered into the land of Canaan, the place that God had promised them, and the place in which God had given them uh, that land through uh, their great-great-great-grandfather Abraham, right? And so we have uh, that recorded for us in this book. Uh, I mentioned early on that uh, really this whole book of Joshua, though it deals with specifically the people of Israel, um, the Jewish nation, it also deals by application, I think, with all believers at every time. Because there's so much in this book that show us that God wants us to enter into a place of rest in him. And to live the Christian life victorious. He wanted the children of Israel to be victorious over the enemies. He wants us to be victorious over our spiritual enemies. And he wants us to be victorious in our walk with him in this life that is a great struggle. It also pictures for us in this book of a great, as, as the book of Joshua really is an account where... Um, a man named Joshua, all right, his name being Yeshua in Hebrew, which is the exact same name that Jesus had, Yeshua. Uh, and he is a picture of the one who is the captain of our salvation, Jesus, uh, who it really pictures for us the one who brings us not only into a place with him in this life in rest, but he gives us eternal life. Something that the Joshua in the book of Joshua could not give his people. But he provides leadership, and he pictures for us a greater that was to come, a savior, a deliverer, someone that we can follow, who is uh, Jesus the Messiah. Um, we looked last week at the message from God and what that message was like and what it came to do. And remember, God gave the message to Joshua. Joshua gave the message to the people. As they came out of the um, the wandering in the wilderness experience, and they had done that for an entire generation of people that had died off and because they lacked really the faith and the desire to enter into the promises of God. So God says, fine, you want to do that? Um, I'm going to let you wander around till you all die. And what a sad tragedy to spend your entire life wandering around, not really ever accomplishing anything, but just taking up some part of terra firma at any given time and breathing air that God gives us and never really entering into the right relationship with him. And sadly, many people in our world find themselves in that very situation. And that generation died off. A new generation was raised up, a generation that would believe God, a generation that would say, we will do these things. And they, did, though, did not do it perfectly they endeavored to follow uh, what the Lord had given them and to do that. So we came to chapter 3 last week, and we came to the crossing of the Jordan experience. And we, we kind of left it right there uh, with God's plan, what he had for the people, 
and what they were to do. And we kind of briefly just at the end of last week's message touched on that miracle of the crossing of the Jordan. So that's where I want to pick up today because we have all these uh, people of Israel gathered on the west side of Jordan and they have to get over onto the other side. And the Bible talks about the Jordan River at that time overflowing its banks. It was an impossible situation unless God would provide a miracle. And that's what we have here. We looked at um, Joshua, the beginning part of that. We're going to pick it up and just read a few verses and then comment and go from there. Joshua chapter 3 verse 14. So it was when the people set out from the, their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still, and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. And so the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah and the salt sea failed and were cut off and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Lord, we are thankful for this account written so many years ago, but yet so applicable to today in our lives. We thank you for our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. We thank you, O God, for the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus. We pray he might be lifted up out of these pages today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You come to this um, miracle of God, and we're going to look at that here momentarily, but uh, we find, first of all, the big problem. And I've already mentioned it. The problem was this, that as it says at the end of this verse, it says, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. We know that this river, and by the way, the word Jordan means descender. It is a river that goes and drops literally um, thousands of feet in the course of about 90 miles. Okay, So it flows fast when there's water in it. When there's not water in it, it's just, as they say, just sort of a little muddy brook, it looks like, in some places. But nevertheless, it's, it goes from the mountains of Lebanon all the way down into the Dead Sea, or the Great Salt Sea, as it's referred to in Scripture. And there it, it ends, that way. But where they were crossing, across from the city of Jericho, the Jordan overflowed its banks. And if you want to look on google earth and you can do that you can look at modern day jericho and where the jordan is and all of that and you can see the floodplain very clear floodplain of where the jordan river floods out um, though it doesn't flood out much now because it's controlled but uh, in those days you can see definitely the ancient floodplain and you would realize how big an obstacle it presented for all these people to cross over Anyways, I say that because there was a problem. And sometimes we face great problems that really only God can overcome. Only God can do those things. And sometimes he puts us in the very right spot in God's timing to do something. Uh, sometimes he puts us, uh, he, he makes circumstances uh, around us 
fall into place and he watches us and, and orchestrates things sometimes years in advance i mean of course from eternity past right he has his hand on things and is moving through the course of our events in this world and every single thing falls under his sovereignty but i say that because we find here this obstacle that there was really no other way but to follow god's plan and can I just tell you up front a picture here of the gospel also where the Jordan, and I've mentioned this before, represents the place of death and the place of the wandering experience in the wilderness. A picture of the life of a sinner who just wanders around aimlessly and has no way to enter into the place God has for him because there is that obstacle of the Jordan or the spiritual Jordan in our case Uh, our sin that is before us and it pictures death if they were to go on their own and just step um, you know foot into the jordan those waters would have been rushing waters would have just swept them away to their death but god had a plan and there was quite a plan and um, we know that this generation had chosen to follow god if you read through the book of numbers for example we have the sad account of when Israel did not believe God. And it wasn't because of the Jordan River at the time. It was actually because of the occupants of the land. And in Numbers chapter 13, in verse 31, we have the account of the testimony of the 12 spies that came back, that had gone into the land to spy it out um, some almost 40 years before the event in Joshua. And uh, by the way, Joshua was one of those men and another man named Caleb And they were the only two of that generation that would actually enter into the land. And they believed God. But ten of the spies came back, a vast majority of them, right, came back and gave a report that was negative and said, we can't do it. It's impossible. And it says, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, come from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight and these men come back and they say there's the land is filled with giant men they were big men now most likely the later on the descendants of some of those same men show up like with goliath okay and goliath is described as a monster of a man and i don't know about you but men often size each other up we do that you know a guy comes in the room we go ah you know is he a dangerous man or is he not? And, of course, if you're friends, you know you're friends. But men can do that. They size each other up. Uh, probably women do that, too, in different ways. And, yeah, don't, don't go there, you guys. Don't say it. I'm just telling you. I've learned, I've learned a few things. And, uh, you know, don't go there. But, uh, and I do. I'm sorry. But, anyways, my wife's not here this morning. She's down with the, the kids. But, um, I, I, yeah, I'm not going there either with you. You stay there. We size each other up. And sometimes somebody can walk in a room and be intimidating. Now you imagine going into a land that's not your home yet, and yet it's a land that's been promised to you, and it's filled with all these giant men. You can understand they lost heart. But in the reality, think about this. 
This was the same generation in the book of Numbers that had just seen the great miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea and had seen the entire Egyptian army, the biggest army on earth at that time and the strongest army on earth at that time, be swallowed up in the Red Sea. God did that. God actually defeated the Egyptians and allowed them to cross over into the land. And they could have gone from there into the land of Canaan. But all of a sudden, unbelief came in. And I think the application here is very simple. Sometimes we lose confidence if we take our eyes off the Lord. And really, if we get out of his word, it's easy to lose confidence. And our confidence shouldn't be a self kind of confidence. It should be a God confidence. And I see that later on with the story of David and Goliath. David is a young, probably a teenage boy, and he goes down when all of Israel is afraid of the giant Goliath. David goes in, and he, by God's power, goes into that valley alone, and he slays the giant. One man uh, who he believed that God had given him that land, and that he could defend his own land, and he went down and he did it. And that's really the application that we see here as well. Back in verse 15, we see that there was a plan. And I'll be honest with you, this is the strangest military plan that I've ever seen. Now, um, one of the greatest uh, military barriers today to move um, ground forces is um, bodies of water, like rivers. And you know anything about military history, that was probably the way that not only the hardest to overcome, but the easiest, easiest to defend. So if you have a bridge, you can blow the bridge up, and all of a sudden, like if we didn't have a bridge here in Madawaska, as some of you truckers know, right, you have to go 20 miles that way or 20 miles that way and cross the river. And if you didn't have those bridges, it would be that much harder, and you couldn't move things and all of that, and you certainly couldn't move people. And keep in mind, they're all on foot. There was no bridge anyways. And uh, the, God doesn't have this plan for them to build a bridge. Instead, he has a plan for them to trust him, and he isn't going to tell them exactly how he's going to do it, but he says, you're going to have the priests do what the priests do, which is pick up the Ark of the Covenant and move it in accordance with the way God wanted it moved, And when they do that, and you're going to get in a certain order, when they go down and the feet of the priest touch the water, the waters are going to be rolled back. And there'll be dry ground in front of them. Now, I don't know about you, but that looks kind of strange to me. It would very much look strange if you read of the... uh, the priests and the garments that they had to wear and the Ark of the Covenant and its description and all of those things, it would have been unique in military history to ever have something like that go on to move an entire people and nation onto another part of the land. And yet it was God's plan. And may I say it this way, God has his plans and he just wants us to get in line and follow him and trust him. That's what faith is. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And God doesn't tell us exactly how he does all the things he does, not only in creation, but uh, even in our justification and our forgiveness of sin and all of those things. We have the word of God. We know that he forgives sin, but he wants us to trust him. And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you say, well, but if I believe on the Lord, how is it that he saves me? Well, I just know he saves me. And I know he saves me because Jesus took my place on the cross. 
And you think about that whole message of the gospel and the focus on the cross and the crucifixion of Christ. That in itself was a very strange plan in my estimation. The Bible says, Paul says, that it is foolishness to them who are perishing. Those who stand outside and they look and they say, how is it that all these Christians all over the world, all through the centuries, have followed a Savior who died on a cross and he rose again and and how is it that they do that? And why are they so dedicated, so many? And some, right to their very death through persecution, have professed faith in Christ. And they follow a strange plan. But it was God's plan. His only plan. He doesn't have another plan. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He is the sin bearer. He is the Savior. And His way of salvation is the only way. He took our sin at the cross. It might seem strange to some, but it is God's way and it is God's miracle. There was a plan. Sometimes we just need a plan, (laughs) but we need it from God. Joshua knew, as we know from chapter 1, God says, be of a good courage, right? His heart was melting within him. He was the leader of this group of people, and it wasn't a small group. Some say in the millions. And you know, he had to go and lead this band, and yet it was he was not alone. God was going before him. And that's pictured in the plan of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant. As I mentioned, uh, I think last week, the Ark of the Covenant was associated closely with the glory of God, and it was the very place that God would meet with his people. And so in essence, they were following God when they were following the Ark. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That verse found in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul, breathed out by God the Holy Spirit, reminds us that God's plan is bigger than ours and it's better than ours and it's for his own glory. See, God was going to do something that nobody else could take the credit for. And that's really what God wants. You see, when we try to take credit for something and we try to add a little bit of our you know, glory in it, it, all of a sudden that takes away from God and it's idolatry and it's really putting something else ahead of God. And when we worship God, he wants us to worship him and follow him in faith. And that's why I believe salvation is of God and not of people. The Bible says that we're saved by his grace and not by works. That's also found in the book of Ephesians. And you know, if I could say, oh, I saved myself and I'm in heaven because of uh, the good deeds I did, for example. Yeah, I've done a few good deeds in my life. I've probably done some bad deeds too. I know I have. I'm a sinner. And the Bible says our good deeds don't get us into heaven. The only good deed is the deed that Christ did when he died for us on the cross and he rose again victorious over sin and death. And if I was somehow, imagine if me standing in heaven someday and saying, wow, I, I gave maybe a little extra money and I did this and did that and I was a pastor and all these things, and surely God will take a little credit and maybe give me a little bit of, I'm there because of me. You know what that would be? Uh, Eternally, I would be really standing in a place where I'm not giving God the glory. 
That's why when Joshua and his men and all their families stand there on the edge of Jordan, there's really an impossible situation. There wasn't any one of them that could get across Jordan. But God was going to do it. And then they would have to give glory to God. In there was a great performance, and we read of that. This is the record. It says this, the, the, the feet of the priests hit the water, and it says that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city of Adam, and the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Areba and the Salt Sea failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jordan. Now, uh, and I'll read the next verse too. The priests and the, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So picture it. The priests go down and they, as soon as their feet hit the water, the water rolls back. And they go down into the middle of the Jordan on dry ground. And then all of Israel crosses past them and goes in and only after the last one made it in to the land of Canaan did the priests come out and then the waters returned and it's interesting and we're going to talk a little bit more about that whole thing but just the picture that goes on not only would it have been a very strange thing to see especially if you were in the city of Jericho and looking out on this you would have seen this miracle that took place I still find that fascinating that the whole city of Jericho didn't repent right at that moment and say, wow, God's big and we're in trouble. Because that's really what repentance is, when we realize God is big and we're in trouble. And we turn from our sin to him who can save us. They didn't. Only Rahab and her family. That's it. But we find here the water, which represents death, the water which represents judgment, really. And it, it separated, a separation from where God had them to be. It was cut off and rolled back up stream to the city of adam now even to this day they don't know exactly where the city of adam was but it's aptly named because you realize adam who was our first father right way back uh that adam had a problem see he sinned and adam according to what the bible says passed on sin to every generation from there on including my generation including to me my great, 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 great grandfather Adam. I can blame him for a lot of things. But God had a plan. God rolled back the waters of the Jordan all the way to Adam. By the way, he's rolled back sin all the way back to Adam. Now, the Bible doesn't talk exactly about Adam if he ever um, believed. That's the Adam of the book of Genesis. Um, if he ever believed on God, but we assume he did because the Bible says that God provided, remember, skins for he and his wife, a picture of a covering for their shame that sin had brought. And I think that's a picture of the gospel. And I think Adam understood that. And he was, he, he was reconciled with God. Nevertheless, his sin separated him and the consequence of sin was passed on. I'm thankful for that, that God can roll back sin and the consequences of it all the way back to Adam. You know, some people today are standing, spiritually standing, on the wrong side of Jordan, and they're there because they think their sin is so great that God could never forgive them. My friends, may I say you are so mistaken if you're in that camp. God forgives all sin. The only sin he can't forgive is if you reject him. If you reject him, there is no other 
sacrifice. There is no other way. And that, I believe, is the unpardonable sin, and it would be tragic. And if you are hearing this today, I would just say this, that he can forgive any sin that you've ever had, everything you do, even the ones you've forgotten. (laughs) He does those things. The book of Romans in the New Testament talks about this process of sin through Adam, and then the second Adam who came. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world... And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law was law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's the first man all the way to the man who gave the law. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. He's a type of someone to come. Like Joshua was a type of someone to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. That gift was its gift of death. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. See, there would be one who would be raised up out of Adam's race, Jesus Christ. And by him, we would be justified. We would be forgiven. That's God's plan. The first Adam couldn't do it in his own. He had to have God uh, cover him. And by the way, you can't do it either. You need to have your sins forgiven and removed. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, act, okay, righteous act, one man, and that's Jesus. And by the way, his death on the cross and his resurrection was a one-time event. It doesn't happen again and again and again. It doesn't need to. It was his death which accomplished the payment for sin. It was finished. Just like the priests who went down into the Jordan and there they're holding the Ark of the Covenant where God's glory dwelt with the people they stood there and they remained there until everybody had passed over and when Jesus hung on the cross and in his final breath he said it is finished it was finished one act one righteous act I'll tell you that's a powerful act The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Aren't you glad that where sin abounds, grace did much more abound? We need his grace today. Joshua in his day needed God's grace He needed God's help, his power, all of those things. And my friends, 
Sometimes we stand there on the wrong side of Jordan looking over saying, oh, I don't want to go and, and step out on faith and believe God. That's exactly what he wants you to do is believe on him and step out and to do it. Well, we come in the last part of this to a memorial to God. A memorial to God. And you have the message, you have the miracle, and then a memorial. And um, we're going to read through verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4. So this has taken place. They've all come across. And then look what it says. And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, I like this, okay? God doesn't let him in on a plan before the plan, the next step. By the way, God doesn't always let us know the next step either. He wants us to go and follow him. And then along the way, sometimes he adds something. Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe. And command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. They were commanded to take these stones and they were to go and do something with them. We'll come to the do something here in a moment. But, you know, I I thought about that because, you know, rocks stay a long time, don't they? Especially... You know, I think of some of those probably uh, the river rocks that were all rounded and all those things. You'd get down in the middle of a river. You see when the St. John is low and sometimes you get some nice stones that are there. You never see them except for when the, the water's low. And most of the time they're covered with water. But you know, the Jordan had dried up or by God's miracle. And as they cross over, God says, oh yeah, Joshua, I want you to take 12 men, one from each family of Israel, all right? each tribe, and I want them to go down and pick up a stone. It's important. You do this. Stones are important because they last longer than people on this earth anyways, the, the, uh, the physical part. You know, uh, I think all of us probably, uh, you know, we've had those moments of time where we've visited a graveyard, uh, visited a cemetery, visited a place where there are memorials often um, erected there for memory of a loved one or some... Uh, event. Uh, I remember years ago walking through a cemetery in Victoria Corner, New Brunswick. There's one down in front of MBBI or in front of the campus there, and there are a lot of people from MBBI that are buried in that um, cemetery from, you know, staff members and others that were there, founders that had died and they're buried, and there were lots of others too from the community that were buried there. And I remember taking Ben when he was about four years old, my son Ben. We were walking down through there, and uh, he and I, I was mowing the cemetery, and I had gone down after I mowed it, and Ben wanted to see it. And he began to ask questions about memorial these stones. And who was that? And who was that? And who was that? And I didn't know all the stories, but I did know this, that it made him very serious. And I told him, I said, Ben, four years old, I said, when you die... They take your body and they put you in a cemetery, but you don't have to remain there. And I talked about the resurrection. I talked about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, it made sense to him. And I remember looking at those memorial stones because it reminded us that we had faith and hope beyond the grave. 
First time I ever visited Gettysburg Cemetery in Pennsylvania. Gettysburg is a national cemetery. It's also a battlefield and a park, a national park. And uh, it commemorates and, you know, memorializes uh, the most, well, really the bloodiest battle of all of American history. Where in the course of three days, July 1 to 3 in 1863, tens of thousands of men died on the battlefield at Gettysburg. There were men from Maine there, by the way. The 20th Maine was credited with actually holding the left flank of the Union line, a line that stretched about three miles across the battlefield, and they were on a little place called Little Round Top. And if I was the main, or I was the, the Union Army, and you were the Confederates, you'd be looking at me like this, facing off. And the main regiment would have been way, way over on the left. And the 20th Maine was there. And they were tasked with holding that flank. Because if you got outflanked, and you, the army came in, they could cut off your supplies and take you. No problem. And the South knew that. General Lee's forces knew that. And they knew the most vulnerable place would be on the flanks. In the 20th Maine, on July 2nd of 1863, during the heat of the day, July in Pennsylvania, it was, it was unbearably hot. Men in wool uniforms, and they were facing each other off as the 16th Alabama climbed up the hills. And there they uh, fought the 20th Maine. And it was an amazing um, accomplishment that took place by holding it joshua chamberlain and his charge we learned he was a Maine native right and he charged down the hill as his men had almost run out of ammunition entirely some had run out of ammunition and they fixed bayonets in one desperate hope and they charged down the hill and they were able to capture most of the 16th alabama regiment and they thus held the line at Gettysburg. Gettysburg is considered the high tide of the Civil War. It was the furthest northern place that the Southern Confederate Army reached ever since Gettysburg. On July 3rd of 1863, they, the South retreated and continued to retreat until they were eventually defeated and had to surrender. A lot could be said there. As you walk through the cemetery at Gettysburg, and it's lots of cemeteries, really, because they buried people, um, they gathered up the bodies afterwards, and they buried them in various locations, later disinterred their remains and brought them into a more centralized cemetery, but there's still lots of various parts of that cemetery, and there's a great big monument in the, in the middle of part of that, uh, several of those monuments dedicated to the men on both sides who died at Gettysburg, and I'm always amazed by that, but it's still, the thing that that really stirred my heart, and I've been there a few times, was Gettysburg at Little Round Top. Because you go there and there's not really much for memorials or anything like that. There's a few plaques here and there, and it's mostly a forested hill now. But there's these great big rocks. And you can kind of see a little bit of picture there of today and uh, back right after the Battle of Gettysburg, a picture there. And I'm sorry, it's not real detailed for you. But... Those rocks are the same. If you looked at that carefully, you'll see those rocks. I think the first time I sat there was 132 years after the Civil War and uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg. And as I was standing there looking at some of these rocks and realizing that men died here, Maine men stood firm here, and they did a great thing. 
They did so for the freedom of others. Don't forget that. And don't let historians rewrite history and say America didn't suffer a great cost to free people and abolish slavery. We suffered greatly and lost some of our best men during that time. Those rocks, they speak to this day. Those rocks, as you stand there and you touch them and you feel them and you realize the history that took place in this area. Oh, the trees have changed a little bit, (laughs) but those rocks don't. And God said to Israel, he says, I want you to, as you cross that Jordan, pick up some stones. Why? Very simply. Verse 6 says, And this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Like Ben, when he's walking through the cemetery with me. What is, it, what is this about? Well, let me tell you what it's about. Stones have a way of doing that. Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. I love that. Forever. See, God was doing a great work and God wanted to make sure they didn't forget it. By the way, we quickly forget what takes place sometimes. I think of that in any any work that goes on for the Lord, there are those that, that, that go on, now they're not with us, you know? Our little cemetery in St. David grows every year, uh, at least by occupation of space it does, and I think of those that are no longer sitting here with us in church or leading in church, doing those things because now they're in heaven and their bodies are temporarily located in St. David <laughs> in a very special place. But we remember them. Often remembering, especially when you're right there confronted with those things. Here they were to be confronted with the remembrance in generations to come. Because one generation sometimes fails to pass on things to the next. And we forget quickly. There was this heap of stones that was going to be placed on the other side of Jordan. And there was also a heap of stones that was to be left in the Jordan, by the way. And that would be covered by the water. But then the heap of stones that was on the other side of Jordan when they first came in, that would stay there. And according to this, when the book of Joshua was written, to this day, it says. I love that. Joshua 4.21 says, Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. And look what verse 24. That all the people of the earth may know the hand of the Lord that it is mighty and that you might fear the Lord your God forever. That's a missionary verse by the way. The act that occurred in Joshua of Israel crossing over the Jordan on dry ground was for every people everywhere to understand that God's big. He's the God of all the earth. By the way, God has revealed himself from the very beginning of the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation and the closing verses there as a missionary God that wants all people everywhere to worship him and know him. He's always wanted that. 
And when these stones would be erected there and people would come through there, it would give glory to God. And it showed that God had done a great work. And my friends, there's nothing wrong with erecting little memorial stones here and there. Now, I'm not somebody that necessarily says, well, erect some kind of stone thing that always says this is where this happened or where that happened or this. But because sometimes it's just memorializing people and not God. But the reality was this, that um, sometimes it's easy to forget what God does. And I think it's important in our own lives to sometimes just erect a little memorial. Like something you can, you can go back to, even if it's just in your mind. Saying that's a big deal, where God met with his people. And I was there, and I remember it. When I drive through Winterville, and I go by, um, actually south of Winterville, and there's still a little one-room schoolhouse that's now been repurposed and all that, um, that sits in the potato field out there, what used to be a potato field. And that little one-room schoolhouse, it's there. And I don't know if it'll outlive me or not, but I keep going by it. And as I go by it, every single time I think, God, that's where I met you for the first time and I was saved. Mountain View Bible Church was meeting in that little building. And it was, if you think about it today, you'd say, nobody would show up in a building like that. We had to go on a Sunday morning and someone had to go early to light a fire in the wood stove to heat up the building and there was no running water, all right? There was later on, uh, was there? No, there wasn't. I think it was just a little outhouse on the back. So you had one service and uh, a prayer service before that and, you know, that's how it was. Uh, We had electricity most of the time. But it was just an old one-room schoolhouse. That's what it looked like inside still. And they had brought in some old pews and put those in there. And I saw God work. God work. Went in there and I heard Christians singing. I heard them singing in ways I never heard anybody sing before in my life. Because I was raised somewhat religious, but I never heard people actually sing unto God like they meant it. Some did, maybe, but I, I would remember thinking, oh boy, here we go again. My grandmother always sang, but she always sang either about two words ahead of everybody else. So that's how I learned to sing, I guess. It was always... But, you know, I think about that, and that was one of the first things that stood out to me, this, that, that God's here. He's in this place. And it, it wasn't, he wasn't contained in that little one-room schoolhouse. Never was. He's big. He's so big. He, the world itself, the cosmos couldn't contain him. But he was meeting with his people. And I go by that building. It looks a little more dilapidated. And they used to keep a fresh coat of paint on it. About every two years had to paint it because that's the way old clapboard is. And I remember uh, saying, every time I go by, God, that's a place where you saved me. Most of the world doesn't know that. My kids do. My wife does. A few others. You do. But thank you, Lord, for that. Erect those little places in your mind. That's where God met with me. That's what God did. Or that's the time when it was impossible for me to get by that Jordan, so to speak. And you showed up, God. You did something, and I just had to trust you. That's all. Oh, be like that and trust him. There were some reasons um, for the memorials. And this memorial, number one, pictured for us the faith of the people. When those stones, if they were to speak, they would remind people that his, God's people stepped out by faith and followed him. Verse, four, or verse 9 of chapter 4, 
Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. That's that heap of stones. See, there was two memorials, one in the Jordan. Joshua took twelve stones, he puts them there. And each one of those stones represented really what God had done at that very spot. And when the waters came back over them, nobody would even know they're there. Someday that little one-room schoolhouse is going to be gone. I don't know when. Eventually it's going to fall down. It's still out there. But God knows where that is. And I say that the place in which he, he does. And I'm not too concerned about places, by the way. I just say that there are some special things in the world where he has met with me and with you. But there was this reminder that God's people followed him and crossed over there in that day and then secondly it pictured not only the faith of the people but the faithfulness of god and that's bigger verse 20 and those 12 stones which they took out of the jordan joshua set up at gilgal there was a place where he would take out of the jordan and there he would go and he would set it up as a memorial to what god did think about that and again as people would come in generations ahead they would come along and they say what do these stones mean ah let me tell you in an opportunity to share the gospel and i don't know if that's working or not but let's go to first peter chapter two. First peter chapter two the bible says this and uh my i'm going to go back to my other one here in first peter chapter two you have this said therefore laying aside all malice all deceit hypocrisy envy and evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby you know one of the things that god wants us to do after we become followers of him and believers he wants us to grow peter likens it to a new babe you know a baby growing look what it says if indeed you have tasted that the lord is gracious Coming to him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Then he says this, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. My friends, the Bible says you who are believers... You church, you are actually individually stones, spiritual stones, and living stones, just like he is a living stone. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. We serve a Savior who is alive and one who is is still doing amazing things. And the great thing is this, that, you know, and I'm going to say uh, buildings fall apart and fall down. Nations tumble, all that kind of stuff. But God's people remain forever. Forever. You're a living stone. That's one thing that was different about those stones that came out of the Jordan. None of them could breathe. None of them could, you know, had any body temperature to them or anything like that. They were just stones. But they represented a living God. And you also, if you're a believer in Christ, you represent a living God. And you're our spiritual house, it says. And people ought to be saying, hey, what does that stone mean? And they should be giving glory to God in those things. God's like that. He wants us to follow him 
and believe. And then again, Joshua chapter 4, verse 24, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you might fear the Lord your God forever. That's part of God's plan. He wants us to do that. What's holding you back today from crossing over Jordan? Have you crossed for salvation? As Peter later says, tasted of his gracious gift. Have you? If you have, have you entered into a place of rest with him? That you can enter now. As the world falls apart around us, we can rest with him. You can be saved. You can walk with him and live with him forever. That's the promise of the gospel. Let's pray. Our God, we are grateful for your word. And we are grateful again that you are the God who is alive. And just as you were in Joshua's day, that Lord, you did the impossible that is always possible with you. We might think it's impossible, but Lord, you can do all things. Help us to believe and to trust and to walk with you and rest with you. And Lord, that we might rise up or raise up another generation that would speak of these wonderful truths and these stones would cry out in Jesus' name. Amen.